Let's read God's Word. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and there came and drew water and filled the troughs of water their father's flock, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord. When we read our passage of scripture inside this sermon series on the book of Exodus, it can appear to just be given some behind the scenes of what's taking place. But there is so much richness here in what's taking place, not only in Moses' story, but also in our story as well. In verse 11, you notice that the Bible tells us that one day, all of a sudden, when Moses had grown up, the picture that we see there is not just one of age, but it is one of position. It is one of stature. Moses had become a great man. We, we notice that as we've continued in this story inside the book of Exodus, that in last week's uh, sermon, we were talking about this Moses being a baby and how he was miraculously saved by the hand of God working through three women. See, Israelite boys living inside of Egypt were to be killed. They were to be tossed into the Nile to be drowned or eaten by crocodiles. But the Pharaoh hated the Israelites. He was racist against them. He was creating genocide or generational genocide against the Israelites and hoping to put out or to stamp out the population growth that was taking place because he was in fear that they would be overran. 
Well, lo and behold, what does Moses' mom do? She creates, she builds an ark, a little um, basket, if you will, a box, and, and trusting the Lord sends him down the Nile while Moses' older sister Miriam watches and the reads and, and, and prayerfully guides and hopes um, that her big brother will be safe and then bring that information back to mama that the boy is going to be okay. But what do we see in this twist of events? We see that lo and behold, Moses is found inside of the ark. And yet, what is it? It is Pharaoh's daughter who finds Moses. And lo and behold, the enemy of God's people is, is now decided that she will adopt this baby. And in adopting this baby, um, she sends um, very, the, the very child, Moses, back to his own home to be nursed by his mom. After she is weaned, then after, excuse me, after he is weaned, then the Bible tells us that he goes back to the palace and is raised like an Egyptian son. He receives the best education that the known world has to offer. And so we do now this time warp, this time jump inside of verse 11 from verse 10 as he goes from being this baby to now the, the Bible telling us that, that Moses is now grown up. Now the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And in the New Testament, as I mentioned this last week, there's this follower of Jesus named Stephen. And Stephen is being persecuted because he continues to preach Christ. And in that persecution, he gives a speech. He preaches his last will and testament. He begins to proclaim in the face of much opposition who this Jesus is. And he goes back to the Old Testament and he starts talking about Moses. And I'm going to read you a passage of that scripture here in a little bit. But for right now, inside of Acts chapter 7, it tells us how old Moses actually was when this took place. He was 40 years old. So from verse 10 to verse 11, essentially 40 years passes in Moses' life. For 40 years, this Egyptian, this Hebrew, this Jewish man, this Jewish boy, who is now a man, has, has been living under the influence and living as a wealthy Egyptian. He had been educated and indoctrinated in the pagan culture. He was, which again, was the worship of, of a whole lot of many gods. Some even suggest that, that Moses was trained as a military general, that he had been trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and that the belief is, is that Moses was the cream of the crop. There is even Josephus, a Jewish historian, even puts in his history that Moses is the one who would become the next pharaoh. Forty years has passed. And yet we see inside of this passage that somewhere along the way that Moses has been really wrestling with his biological history of being a Hebrew and yet he is living as, educated as, wealthy as an Egyptian. And so on this particular day, he goes out and begins to observe the Israelites. 
begins to look out over his people. And he feels within him this major identity crisis. That is my family. Those are my brothers. Those are my sisters. And yet I am dressed like an Egyptian. Moses probably spoke several different languages by this time. Moses dresses, looks like, haircut, sounds like an Egyptian. Even so much that later on when he goes out to Midian, what do they claim that he is? An Egyptian. So he's saying within himself, if we can you know, conjecture just a little bit, that he's, he's seeing these people and he's going, man, this is, this is my bloodline and they're being oppressed and, and they're being enslaved. And, and yet, look at me, look at the way that I, something is, is broken with inside of me. There's a great tension, there's a great fight within me on, on who I am and yet who I am living as. So in 12 through 15, in the passage that I just read to you, Moses has a very awakening experience. As he's looking out across his people, he begins and comes across um, these two guys who are fighting with each other, one being an Egyptian and one being an Israelite. And if I'm Moses, if I'm writing this story, which he is, but if Eric Baker is writing this story, I cut all of this out. I don't want you to know this about me. And yet, Moses in his kind of biography or autobiography here in writing about himself puts in this, this major scene, this major fight that's taking place. As he steps into the scene, this Egyptian and this Israelite are at war with each other. It literally plays the picture like there are death blows taking place. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? Something within his personality is already bent toward Moses standing up for other people. Already inside of Moses, we, we see this within him, that there is something about him being a rescuer. We're going to see that, that there is there's a lot of fight in Mo. Most people who read and say this passage and the theologians and scholars throughout history, many of them, the faithful ones, allude to this fact that even at 40 years old, even though he was living, probably walking like an Egyptian, sorry, pun, preacher joke, that he knew that something God had something special for him. He couldn't quite put his finger on it. But he also could not lay the rest, the tension that he felt between being a Hebrew, being an Israelite, and living in Pharaoh's house. As we'll see in Moses' life and in the Israelites, when, when a person or the people of God um, act according to God's desire and plan, they're victorious. 
But when they act on behalf of God, without God's blessing, death always comes. So Moses steps into this situation, right? This is before you could call Todd Hazel at 1-800-CALL-A-BULLY, right, to report somebody. And so the Bible tells us that Moses steps into the scene. And, and notice, don't, don't miss these cool little narrative pictures. What does it say that Moses do, does? Look at your Bibles. It says brother steps into the scene and he does this. Anytime Eric Baker has ever done this, he's about to do something real bad. Right? Brother looks around, and, and you can try to church this up. Maybe he was looking for someone else to come to rescue. Now, I think that Moses' conscience was already like, I don't know that I should do this. But then before he knows it, his eyes roll back in the back of his head like a great white shark. And what's he do? He bludgeons this Egyptian to death. And then being in a sandy place and environment covers up the body thinking, man, this Hebrew is going to thank me for what I've done here. And everything is good. And we can trick a lot of people, but we can't trick an almighty God. The Bible continues inside of this story that what happens? One, the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting and arguing with each other. And as Moses steps in to rescue, to deliver, to stand up for the person that is being accused, what did now the Hebrews do to him? Who gave you the authority, Moses? Who gave you the position to, to judge us, Moses? What, what are you going to do, Moses? Are, are you going to kill us and hide us in the sand like you did the Egyptians? So all it took was about 24 hours for what to spread. Moses' sin. What he thought would be swept under the rug, what he thought would not be found out, is quickly found out. Note to self, if you're in a dark alley, don't ever save an Israelite and tell them not to tell anybody. They go on the tail. Moses is essentially a celebrity around this place. And what was meant to be, Moses had good intentions in rescuing the Hebrew from the Egyptian, but what, how had it been turned? The truth is now known, and the Bible tells us that Pharaoh finds out about this. And that Pharaoh seeks to then kill Moses. And so what does Moses do? Moses, Moses runs. We're going to see inside of this story that as, as Moses um, is in these sorts of situations that he wants to lead, that again, he wants to deliver, he wants to rescue, that he wants to stand. And so Moses attempts to serve them. He attempts to serve these two Hebrews, his two brothers. He attempts to serve this in this way. And yet what do they do? They reject his help. They reject his leadership. They bring accusation against him. And we're going to see this pattern over and over and over and over again. We don't like it, but it was Moses who gave us a very good nickname. Oh, you stiff-necked people. You stiff-necked people. 
So now, Moses has killed an Egyptian. Pharaoh is out to kill him. He has been rejected by everyone. The Egyptians. And now he's been uh, rejected by the own people that he has come to save. And so in this, let's skip ahead to get some commentary on what's happening here from Stephen. So if you guys will hit that slide for me. In the book of Acts, we're past that. There we go. Acts chapter 7, verse 23 and the following says this, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Verse 25, this is the key one. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. See, this is the proof text for what I was saying earlier, earlier that Moses has some sort of understanding that, that God is going to use him in some way. And, and maybe it's that God was going to do like God did Joseph and, and rise or raise Joseph up in prominence inside of Egypt, give him a place to, to help bring prosperity and unity to both the Egyptians and to the Israelites. Maybe that was it. Now he's blown it. Now he's a fugitive. Now he's, he's fleeing for his life. And he's confused. Why are these people following me? And so he runs. And in verses 16 through 22, we learn that Moses runs to a place called Midian. Moses flees to Midian, which is probably a, a couple of days journey from where he's been up to this point. I'll show you guys here on my map here. If you will look over here to, to my left here, you've got Goshen, where the Israelites were inside of Egypt. You've got uh, Ramses, which isn't marked here, I don't think, but it, yeah, it's right there. Um, you've got uh, Memphis. That's why there's the pyramid in Memphis, in case you were wondering that. It's because it's an Egyptian city. Um, but we see that, that Moses, from this map, leaves on a couple of days' journey um, to this land called Midian. This land called Median. So let's, let's hold it right there for just a second. The Midianites, who were they? It's very important for us to understand that. The Midianites were, were descendants of Abraham, father Abraham. Had many sons. You're one of them, and so am I. All right? Father Abraham, after the Bible tells us that after Abraham and Sarah had their whole um, debacle and then they have um, their child Isaac, that eventually Sarah dies. But that, that, that Abraham has some, some other ladies that work for him, concubines. And so that the Bible tells us that Abraham eventually marries one of his concubines. And, and let, me, let me, I don't want to put too much of a picture here, but Abram is well over a hundred something years old by the time this happens. He's a hundred years old when Isaac is born. Sarah, or Sari, is 90, 91. They have Isaac, 
Sarah eventually dies. Abraham marries one of his concubines named Keturah. And they had six more sons. And one of those sons, his name was Midian. And it's believed that Midian, one of Abraham's sons, went to this general area. We don't know exactly where it is because they were a nomadic people. They traveled from place to place. And these were descendants, again, of Abraham through Midian. When you think about this area in, in the world, you need to understand that this nomadic people essentially were living in the desert. I used to live in Phoenix in the, the, the valley area there. It's one of the craziest climates you will ever be in. It is beautiful, but it's beautiful in a different way that Kentucky is beautiful. But one of the things that you will quickly notice about living in Arizona or Tatooine, that's for you, Pastor Todd. If you know anything about Tatooine from Star Wars, Star Wars man, y'all are hurting your children. <laughs> in Arizona's original history and in Tatooine in Star Wars mythology, you know why you went to those places? To run. To not be found. They were deserts. They were places where criminals and fugitives uh, went to live and to dwell. They, they were places where you went to never be seen again. And so what happens is we see Moses, a foreigner in a foreign land. He has reached what we call in today's culture, what, middle age, as, and again has gone from experiencing all that the world has to offer. Do not try this today, men. Do not go home, climb up in your lady, lazy boy, get out your glass, and rattle it to your wife. You'll instantly end up wet. And probably a cook. But imagine being the prince of Egypt. Anything that you could ever want, both good and bad, both a blessing and to the, 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 the most, anything that Moses could have possibly imagined within that ancient culture that he wanted, it was at his, his call. Moses goes from living in this Goshen, in this area where all of these rivers were coming in, it was plush, it was green, it was these beautiful areas, to now he's living in the middle of nowhere. He's living in a desert, a place where it's hard to find food, a place where it's hard to find water. Life was good, and yet one decision after another has has led this man to now living in essentially a huge ditch called a desert. You've got to imagine what's going through this brother's mind. I had everything. Decision after decision has left me now to nothing. I've left everything. I've left everyone I have ever known. I am a failure. I mean, I, I want you to imagine, and maybe, maybe some of you don't have to imagine because it's something you've done, right? But I, I want us to pretend just for a moment like you've broke bad, like you've done something really 
really, really bad. Maybe it was back in high school. Maybe it really happened. Maybe you're just pretending with me with the images of movies that you've seen or sitcoms or something. But, but imagine with me just for a second that you've done something deplorable. Like you have taken someone's life. What's your next move? Moses is battling all of this to the point where it says he gets to Midian and he appears to take some sort of break against he's in the wilderness, he's in the desert, he sits down next to a well and maybe he determines this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life, maybe I just need to die right now, but he, he takes a seat next to this well. All of this pacing through his mind. And then we see what, what takes place. We, we see that there's this young, uh, this, this priest named Ruel. He's also named as Jethro. So anytime you see, you've probably heard of the name Jethro inside the Old Testament, especially when you're talking about Moses. We'll talk a lot about Jethro in this sermon series. Same guy. Um, they had many different names and, and nicknames for that matter as well. So we find out that this man, this priest, lives in this type of area. And in living inside this area, he has seven daughters. These seven daughters come to, to water their sheep, to get some food for their sheep, to you know get them just to not be dehydrated. And so they're there. All of a sudden, these other shepherds show up. And they begin to bully these women. And the Bible tells us that Moses stands up to deliver them. And somehow, Moses is like, you know, an Egyptian ninja or something. Again, this man has been trained in warfare, probably experienced war himself up until this point, but he's able to run off all of these shepherds. And then immediately, what does he do? The Bible tells us. Begins to give water to the animals for the women. They go back home. Daddy's like, man, how did I get back so quick? I can imagine with seven daughters, he was enjoying that time. <laughs> how did I get back here so quick? And they tell him the story. Where there's this guy. There was this Egyptian daddy. You won't believe him. Big, tall, dark, handsome. But like Charleston Heston. <laughs> and he was at the well. Just rip, daddy. Just rip, man. And those bullies, you know, Billy Bob, Jethro, uh, not Jethro, that's the good guy, right? We'll come up with some name for him, right? Some, some bullyish group of men, they were trying to hurt us David. This man, he swelled up next to the well. Called him a bunch of good names. Runs them off and they go, go fleeing and then immediately, what's he do? He began to feed our animals. We got to, we got, or to water our animals. We got to kind of take this break as this, this strange man. And what does daddy say? You got to go get the stranger. Because again, inside of this culture and inside of an honor culture, and if you've been to places like Africa and stuff like that, like in India and things that, that many of us have been to, uh, you will quickly know as a stranger, you are welcomed in as family. It's a very ancient practice. Jethro extends an imitation of hospitality to Moses. Moses goes back to the tent. He's hanging out with himself, daddy here, Jethro, Raul. And then what? He determines that this is where he's going to spend his days. In that, Jethro gives him one of his daughters, Sephura, and they have a son. 
that he names after being a sojourner in a foreign country. This is where Moses finds himself. It literally is from, from the penthouse to the poorhouse. I know that some of you are fellow goody-goodies like me. And, and you don't want, you never want to hear those words disappointed from your parents. Those were just the weight of the world was crushing upon you to ever hear those words. Anybody follow me? I know that we got a couple in here. Goody goodies, right? We're really good. We're really hard on ourselves because we're so good. And every time we mess up, we're really hard on ourselves. Yet simultaneously, we're really hard on you if you screw up. We're really good at pointing that out at you. The thing is, is we know that about you. We just can't convince you that you are that way. But you are. You are really bad. And we see it. All of us goody-goodies. You don't have to be hard on a goody-goody. You know why? Because they're much harder on themselves than you could ever be. Some of you are rebellious and you still don't know all the ways that you've messed up. Others of us have a list of ours and yours. Moses has a conscience. Moses has killed a man. Moses has hit him in the sand. He could, have, he could have probably lied and used his power and stature with inside of Egypt to step forward and probably come out and scot clean. But what's he do? He runs. He does not accept responsibility. He finds him place in a physical desert. And yet I would contend to you that it's very reflective of also where his heart and affections are as well. Moses finds him, himself in the wilderness. A place of barrenness. A place of death. Where do we find ourselves? Where do you find yourself this morning? Now, when I was a child, I was a child in the 80s. I remember being asked often, as a kid, maybe you guys can feel this, do you have a girlfriend was a common question we used to ask people. It's so weird to do that now, I think. Maybe because I'm in my 40s now. <laughs> but as a kid, I remember going to church, going to my grandparents, you got you a little girlfriend? Well, yes. Do you see me? I mean, yes. <laughs> of course. What's wrong with you that you don't? We used to ask people that question. Do you have a girlfriend? Go to church. Little old ladies grab that. You got a girlfriend? Yes, yeah, she's a bird. The other question that we love to ask kids is this. What do you want to be when you grow up? We love to ask kids that. I mean, it's like one year is old. What do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, that kid ain't got no clue of what you're talking about. Right? And then they go to school, and from the time they're in kindergarten, they start talking about needing to pick a career, which is ridiculous. And then you come to me as a college freshman, and I'm like, stop it. 
What do you want to be? See, we live in a culture where our identity is so wrapped up in what you and I do, isn't it? Especially among men. Hey, what's your name? My name's Eric Baker. What do you do? I make up stuff. Because <laughs> as soon as I tell my own preacher, they're like, especially if they got a beer in their hand. I'm like, you can share. I'm of age. <laughs> grow up, because so much of our identity is wrapped up again in what we want to do, but imagine, um, again, as, as I became an adult and then a professor, I've had lots of conversation with students, again, about of asking these sorts of questions, especially my college students, like, man, what is really your passion? What do you really love to do? So imagine you being asked that as a kid, right? Everybody go back. Some of you got to go way back. <laughs> Go back to that moment of being asked that question uh, as a kid. And and what do we say? Man, as children, we dream of being doctors and lawyers and actors and playing professional sport. Our dreams are as big as the sky itself. I mean, you walk into any elementary school right now and you ask a group of kids what they want to do. And it's different. I know it's hard for us older folk, but they're going to say things like, you know, I want to be a social media influencer. I want to be on YouTube. I want to, I want people to pay me to watch me play a video game. I mean, I want to be a voice actor, right? I mean, we learn all sorts of things from people, right? But they believe it. The smallest kid playing rec league basketball thinks he or she can be in the NBA. They believe that. None of us, when we were kids, ever said, when I grow up, I want to be poor, I want to be single, I want to be divorced, I want to be a drug addict. Yeah, Mr. Baker, when I grow up, I want to sell meth out of an RV. It's lucrative. And then invest in a stock mutual fund. Right? I mean, no one ever says that. Right? No one says, I want to go to prison. Right? You get your own room. With Bubba, up top, three meals a day, time in the rec room, lifting weights. No one ever says that. No one says, I want to, when I grow up, I want to be a racist. No one ever says, man, when I grow up, I want to be a bully again. See, brothers and sisters, many of us where we sit, some of those things we can, can we we cannot control. You cannot control cancer. You can't control COVID, right? You can't control necessarily a, a car wreck or, or tornado skipping over five houses and crushing yours. But if we were really to get down to the brass tacks of all of this, of the place that we currently find ourselves, many of us sit where we currently sit. Is a, a culmination of many small, good, and bad decisions. You know, it's weird to wake up one day and, and realize that you're one of the most, like you're one of the oldest people in the room. You had that happen to you yet? And 
there comes this time in midlife, if you want to call it that, where, where maybe you wake up one morning and you're like, how did I get here? You have this identity crisis. But many of us have had really dark moments in that question. This is the life I never expected. I never expected life to go like this. And what do you feel? You feel like you found yourself in a desert wondering what happened. You feel imprisoned, maybe by your own decisions. And if you're really honest and plunge into the deep corridors of your hearts and begin to ask ourselves these sorts of questions, and we, we can begin to see maybe this decision led to this decision, to this decision, to this decision. And man, you've got the token, the token quarterback, high school, popular, good-looking kid who wakes up one day in rehab and detox imprisoned or just a string of broken relationships you ever gone back to your high school reunion it's really fun for you if your life's gone really well because you make fun of all the bullies that maybe it didn't and we had a tendency to really kind of celebrate the bad things that even happened to other people Oh, they got theirs. It's weird to have that, that wrestling inside of your existence. It's, it's weird to find yourself and to wake up in a place that you never wished that, that or ever desired to be. And again, some of it is because, man, you, you were just handed some bad things in life. And maybe because you're here with me this morning, you're, you're well past that. But, but we at least need to think back just a little bit. And man, if you've never woken up in, in an alley, in a place, in a bed, in, with a headache, of, you know, being sick, and all these sorts of things, that, that when you go back and you look and you think about, man, these are the small decisions that just built upon built, and I had to cover up this because of this, and cover up this because of this. I couldn't be vulnerable. I couldn't be honest. And so you're just walking around with a smile on your face, and yet internally you're in a wilderness place. Moses and ourselves are, are often found in this place. You remember when, when God told Adam and Eve inside the garden, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely what? Die. Now, did they eventually physically die? Absolutely, they did. But what happened immediately was a, a spiritual death, and as part of that spiritual death, God takes them to the edge of the garden, and what's he do? He kicks them out. And where does he kick them to? He kicks them to the wilderness. He kicks them to the wilderness. He removes them and sends them. And similarly, this is what we begin to see inside of Moses' life. Moses wants to do the right thing, but he wants to do the right thing because Moses in some way has a God complex like you and I have a God complex. And so we do the will of God. It was an injustice thing that was happening. And yet we did not have 
the, 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 the God's desire and will and plan for us to act in that way and according to that way in that very moment. And we end up in a really bad place. We end up in the wilderness. Yeah, what do we see inside of Moses' story very quickly, and what do we see inside of our own? We see that God takes a man that's in the desert from failure to follower. It is in the wilderness that we go from, from being a failure to being a follower. Moses had failed. He had failed God. He had failed his people. He was done. Maybe you thought, man, what, the, what a waste of a brilliant mind. Moses' intent was to help the Hebrew. It appears, to again, to be right. But what he did to solve the issue was willful disobedience. Because not only did it kill a man, but he covered it up. As Adam and Eve tried to cover up their own sin in the garden with leaves, they quickly realized only God can cover the sin of his people. James Boyce, a theologian, scholar, pastor, once said this, God can teach us through the failure of our own plans that he is capable of working for us in spite of us. Only after we fail do we become aware that it is God and not ourselves who is working. See, ladies and gentlemen, this is not so that you can, I can run out here and be disobedient today. If you, if you take it that way, then you misunderstand the gospel. But we do need to understand is, is this, though. It is that when we are decreasing, it is God who increases in our lives. When we realize the wretchedness of our own hearts and the depravity of our own minds and, and will as well, our affections, everything about us, when we begin to realize how much of a failure that we really are, it is in that moment that God drives us to that pit, not to leave us there, but rather to show us a better and true way. It's when we fail and realize that we're failures, that we aren't perfect, that God steps in and begins to work. Man, there have been times in our lives where we have experienced great pain and suffering for our choices. Can we all agree with that? God cannot use me. I've blown it. There's no hope for restoration. And yet, God defines who we are, not the sum total of our past mistakes or sin, but rather the sum total of His good grace and His loving kindness toward us. Moses had failed greatly, and yet it did not define and determine who he was. Some of you need to hear this this morning. God uses the broken person. If God doesn't use the broken per person, then the Bible is much shorter. It's a golden rule book. Adam ate the fruit. Noah was naked and drunk. 
Abraham lied about his wife two times and tried to help God with his plan. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses kills a man. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair and her husband murdered to cover it up. Samson liked the ladies. Elijah ran. Jonah ran. Disciples of Jesus ran. Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. And Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, planted in more churches, was the pastor of the New Testament, dragged Christian men and women out into the streets to be killed and imprisoned. God uses the broken man. God uses the, the broken woman. God uses the man who's completely blown it. God uses the woman who is completely blown it. God uses broken people and he teaches this inside of the wilderness. If you are in Christ, God, get this, God is more committed to you and who you're becoming than you are. But God's grace and kindness and mercy, these men and women went from failing to followers. Satan wants you and I to be imprisoned in our past. You know what you did as a teenager. You know what you did in college. You know what you did last week. You know your thoughts. You know that you were not saying hello with the international sign of hello on Scottsford Road. And you thought, man, no one's in the car with me. Anybody been tempted? I've been tempted to throw up all my fingers. I didn't know that can. I mean, it's like, I, it's just me in here. I yell, scream, cuss at the top of my lungs driving down Scottsville Road. It's just me in here. God knows this. Satan wants us to be imprisoned in those things. He wants us to believe. Sin, Satan, and death wants us to believe. Man, I, I, I've done too much. I, I can't get out of this financial death. My debt, my, my marriage can't be any better. I can't become a better uh, parent. I can't be used at Mission Church. I've just, I've just done way too much. I'm too young. I'm too old. All these sorts of things. But I want you to understand this morning in the gospel of Jesus Christ that no matter what you and I have done, no matter how many times that we have failed, seek faithfulness now. Accept responsibility, yes. Confess, yes. Repent, yes. Leave your life of sin and follow Jesus. Pursue Jesus. Pursue obedience. We, we have actually been set free in Jesus to do what? To obey. What you could not do apart from Jesus, now you can do in Jesus. We'll be imperfect, yes, but never use as an excuse. Don't be willfully disobedient towards Jesus and his Church, we delight to do his will. One thing that you will never come across, really, is a happy, comfortable, disobedient Christian. Key word, really a Christian. Because there will be an angst about you. And yet there will be a hope about you. Number two. Is this God isn't wasting the wilderness? God isn't wasting your wilderness. 
God's preparing you in the wilderness. Again, we know the rest of the story, right? But think about Moses sitting next to that whip. Think about Moses living in that desert. The, the Bible is going to tell us that, that Moses lives in Midian for another 40 years. 80 years from the moment his mama put him in the basket and sent him down to Nile. When, when Moses finally has his interactions with God, which we'll come to in the burning bush in a few weeks, the brother is 80 years old. Before his ministry ever starts, I hear from old people all the time, ah, we used to do that when we were young, that's the young people's time. We get to sit here and just take up space. That's not the example that we see in Scripture. See, young people think they're not old enough to engage in ministry, and old people think they're too old to engage in ministry. And yet, over and over and over again, what we see, God using both groups of those people. We see that God isn't wasting the wilderness. That the scripture, God shows up to reveal himself in many ways to people when they're in the wilderness. Away from many of the distractions and consumerism and prosperity, God uses the barren land to reveal the depths of his glory. God teaches one, Moses, patience. God hits the, the pause button on Moses' life. I mean, we hate lag, don't we? I mean, our computers are doing just crazy amounts of things in front of us. But if you ever see the pinwheel of death, I mean, you're ready to kill that thing. We hate to stop at a light. If we stop at a light, what do we immediately got to do? Complain about it and then look at our phone because we have to entertain ourselves because we don't really... I hate going to the doctor. You know why? It's not the doctor. It's the waiting. Be here at 9. Walk in at 3. See you. See her. Drives me insane. We hate to wait. Inside of the wilderness, God is preparing us. He's not wasting it. God teaches Moses patience. Moses sought to do the will of the Lord. Without the Lord's approval, it's... Do you get that tension there? And so what does God do to him? He's got to pop the brakes. All right, deliverer. All right, rescuer. And again, by this time, Moses is probably thinking it's over for me. But God is going to use this to teach patience. It's, we can't ask for the Lord to bless something that goes directly against His will and His word. But we do this all the time. You ever prayed over a McDonald's meal? You just did it. Lord Jesus, bless this Big Mac and large fry and Sunday and Diet Coke to the nourishment of my body. It's fake food. Right? But we ask the Lord to bless our sin and to all of a sudden make it beautiful in His sight. We see this happening all the time inside of our churches as well. We, we see this a lot of time as, as people wanting uh, to take the good gifts of God and yet speed up the process. I believe that for the most of us, that 99.9999999% of us, that God wants Christians to be married. Because it goes back to being fruitful and multiplying. It's hard to do that when you're single. And yet so many times, what do young people and single people do? God wants them to have that good blessing, and yet instead of pursuing it the way that God wants them to pursue it, they try to kind of backdoor God's situation, Right? If I start dating this person who's not a Christian and who's not good for me, then eventually the goal is 
We'll get married and Jesus will save them. Has it ever happened? Absolutely. But the statistics are not on your side. And neither is the word. So what begins to take place is that people want marriage or a relationship more than they want God. And so they'll go out here, they'll get invested emotionally, physically, financially, and it all comes crumbling down. I've, I've seen this happen. Is, I mean, people have told me such things as, I, I got a call once working at a church, and, uh, and this is the way they always sound the phone, and some of you will know this from history. Pastor Eric, um, Pastor Eric, I was just wondering if the church would pay for a hotel room from tonight for me and my girlfriend. No. Right? I mean, it, it's really easy to look at that example, though, and be like, oh, that's crazy. Well, Pastor Eric, there's not been any infidelity, there's not been any abandonment, but God has told me to get a divorce from this person. No brother, no sister. You're in a tough situation. But God doesn't tell people to do things that go against his word. It's really easy to look at some of those sorts of situations and get real hard on them, you know, judgy on them. And you and I do it too. And God is teaching us, man, pump the brakes, teaching us patience, teaching us all of these things. He's teaching us how to, how to follow him. Moses, this is from James Montgomery Boyce as well. Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing, and 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. God is not in a hurry, but we sure are. I'm going to give you the last two, and then I've got to just close. So I'm about to just crash the plane. It's not even going to be a landing. Just The second thing that God teaches Moses in the wilderness and teaches you and I as well, the first thing was God teaches Moses and us patience. The second thing is, is God teaches Moses and us about priorities. And one of those being humility. The third thing is that God teaches Moses and teaches us in the wilderness how to serve other people. Moses delivered the women, and immediately, what did he do? He served them. And for the next 40 years, believed to be the rest of his life, what is Moses now doing? He has become the very thing that he was taught as an Egyptian to hate. Because in the book of Genesis, it tells us that Egyptians hate shepherds. And what does Moses become? A shepherd. See, God has to get Moses out of Egypt so that he can get the Egypt out of Moses so he can go back to Egypt to get God's people out of Egypt. I know that's a lot of words. But it's true. Your sin may have led you to that wilderness, but if you are in Christ, he is not wasting it. He's going to teach you patience. He's going to teach you priorities. He is going to teach you to serve other people. And all of this is why. To point you toward what we see as the true and better shepherd, the true and better Moses. His name is Jesus. Jesus went from a palace to a tent. Jesus went from a priest to the good shepherd. Jesus went from having many servants to what? Being a servant. 
This transition in Moses' life is foreshadowing of Jesus, who would leave his throne of heaven, humble himself, become flesh, and go from riches to rags. He lived and he dwelled among us. He humbled himself, the Bible told us, and took on flesh. Moses, he takes a stand to save and deliver his people, yet he is rejected. Jesus comes to save and deliver and is rejected and despised. Moses flees to a foreign land and is welcomed by a stranger. Jesus comes to his own people and is rejected by them and yet welcomed by the strangers. To prepare Moses for public ministry, it takes him into the wilderness for 40 years. God leads Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days so that we can see that Jesus is the true and better Moses. The only person God ever used with a perfect past was Jesus. Jesus tasted the wilderness in a way that you and I will never taste it if we are in him. The question is, are you in Jesus? Where do you find yourself today? If you're watching on Facebook Live today, where do you find yourself today? If you're listening to this audio, where do you find yourself today? Desert places are real, ladies and gentlemen. Feeling distant from God, feeling like He is distant from us. A lot of times that is provoked by our own sin. But I want you to know and be assured this morning, if you are in Jesus, that Jesus is even using the drought, the spiritual drought in your life. He is trying. He is at work. He is moving very slowly because He is not in a hurry. A day is like a thousand years in the eyes of the Lord. And man, we experience that on a daily experience. And yet it is grace and mercy that He has not returned yet. Why? Because He does not desire that anyone who is in Him would pay or rather that they would come to eternal life. Do you have a genuine relationship with Jesus or are you merely by your own sin sent out to the wilderness never to be delivered and rescued by him? Hell is a place void of God's love. It is the penultimate desert. Turn to Jesus. Come to him. Let's pray.